Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. This episode, we're going to talk about one of the most iconic producers of the 1980s, Don Simpson, which is somewhat ironic, because even though Don Simpson produced some of the biggest hits of the decade and helped make the high concept a provable market force, which redefined what movies would come to represent, Don Simpson and his producing partner, Jerry Bruckheimer, only produced five movies during the entire decade. We'll get a bit into his non-producing life before and after the 80s. And if you want to learn more about Simpson after hearing this, allow me to recommend Charles Fleming's exceptional 1999 biography about him, entitled High Concept, Don Simpson and the Hollywood Cultures of Excess. I read it when it first came out, although I did not consult it during the research for this show. I first started writing this episode back in October of 2019, around the time of his birthday. Don Simpson would have been 76 years old, which, if you are familiar with the excesses of his life, is impossible to imagine. He died at the age of 52, which was the age I hit on my last birthday. In fact, as I record this episode on February 16th, 2020, I will be 11 days older than Don Simpson was the day he died. Although I don't know why that warrants mentioning, I'm kind of a strange guy. Ask my wife. Donald Clarence Simpson was born in Seattle, but spent most of his early life in Alaska. After graduating from the University of Oregon as an English major, Simpson would find his first job in the film industry as an advertising man in San Francisco. One of his first big jobs was handling the publicity for the first international erotic film festival, which was held at the Sutter Theater in San Francisco in December of 1970. The poster for the festival shows the middle portions of a naked man and woman. She's lying atop him. They're facing opposite directions, implying multiple, simultaneous, or a genitalism. The poster also unabashedly announces that there would be more than $4,000 in awards, which would be almost $26,000 today, and that submissions would be accepted in 35mm, or 16mm, or even 8mm. However, the festival creators were careful to announce in a pre-festival interview that pure pornographers were not encouraged to enter. I cannot find any information about how successful the festival was, or which films won the cash prizes, nor if there was even a second international erotic film festival. But that wouldn't matter to Simpson. In 1971, he would move to Los Angeles, where he would market youth exploitation films for Warner Brothers. Now, when we say, quote, youth exploitation films, unquote, and we're talking about Warner Brothers in the early 1970s, we're talking about movies like A Clockwork Orange and Superfly, movies that aren't exactly quirky little indies that need a lot of heavy exposure. A Clockwork Orange would be nominated for Best Picture, and Superfly, both the movie and the soundtrack, would bring in millions of profits for the filmmakers and its musicians. The rest of Hollywood took notice of Don, and in 1973 he was swooped up by Robert Evans and brought over to Paramount Pictures, where he would work his way up the ranks to become the vice president of production in 1977 and the president of production in 1981. Amongst the films Paramount made during his four-year time frame include Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Heaven Can Wait, Foul Play, The Warriors, Star Trek The Motion Picture, American Gigolo, Friday the 13th, Urban Cowboy, Airplane, 
The Elephant Man, Popeye, and the Best Picture winner for 1980, Ordinary People. But Don really wanted to be a writer and an actor. And even though he was working for Paramount, his bosses allowed him to take a little bit of time off to work on the Paul Bartel hit film Cannonball for Roger Corman in 1976, which he co-wrote with Bartel and played a small role as an assistant district attorney alongside Corman. Cannonball is one of the most New Beverly Cinema movies ever to be made. The film stars David Carradine as a driver who looks to an illegal cross-country race to get his career back and features cameos from Mary Warnov, Dick Miller, Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, Jonathan Kaplan, Sylvester Stallone, and Martin Scorsese. The film may or may not have been inspired by the then-recent success of Toby Halicki's Gone in 60 Seconds, but it sure was sold to the same crowd, promising the pile-up of the century. And the film did well enough, earning back nearly double its $780,000 budget in rentals, but it would not come close to the estimated $40 million that Gone in 60 Seconds would earn. Now, remember that list of movies I noted earlier, the ones that were made at Paramount during Simpson's reign as either vice president or president of production? American Gigolo would be the most important film Simpson would help get made during that time, for it would be the film where he would meet his future producing partner, Jerry Bruckheimer. Jerry Bruckheimer had already been producing films for years. Between 1972 and 1977, Bruckheimer would produce four films for director Dick Richards, first as an associate producer on The Culpepper Cattle Company and Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins, and then as a producer on Farewell My Lovely and March or Die. American Gigolo would be Bruckheimer's first solo producing credit, although he was making the film for Freddie Fields, and Bruckheimer would continue to make all kinds of movies all around Hollywood. He'd do Cat People for Universal, Defiance for American International, Thief for United Artists, and Young Doctors in Love for Fox. But when Simpson was fired by Barry Diller and Michael Eisner from Paramount due to his mounting drug problems in 1982, Simpson would ask Bruckheimer to help him produce Flashdance. Flashdance was a gimme to Simpson. Diller and Eisner still had a particular fondness and high-level esteem for the man, who had an innate sense of story, and they didn't want to lose his obvious talents to another studio. Flashdance would team the two men with another pair of producers who were in many ways the mirror image of Simpson and Bruckheimer, in Peter Goober and John Peters, but we'll get to them another time. The film would be directed by British commercial director Adrian Lynn, who the producers chose after their first choice, David Cronenberg, turned down the film, as did their second choice, Brian De Palma. Now, let's stop and let's let that stew for a few seconds. David Cronenberg's flash dance. Brian De Palma's flash dance. Oh, what a feeling. Cronenberg wisely chose to do Videodrome instead, and De Palma opted for Scarface. Thank the fuck Christ. Flashdance was, for all intent and purpose, a quickie job. Production began on the film in October of 1982, finished up at the end of December, and was released into theaters three and a half months later, on April 15, 1983. The film had no big-name stars, although not for lack of trying. 
Amongst the talents considered for the leading male role of Nick included Robert De Niro, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Gene Simmons from Kiss, and John Travolta, who was still fairly golden at Paramount thanks to Saturday Night Fever in Greece. Pierce Brosnan, who was still a couple years away from fame on Remington Steel, and Kevin Costner, who was still a couple years away from becoming better known for Silverado, were also in the mix. For the leading female role, it came down to Demi Moore, who, while having become a known quantity thanks to her role on a popular daytime soap opera, was still a couple years away from her first big movie, St. Elmo's Fire. And Jennifer Beals, who would become a Hollywood it girl for a brief moment thanks to the success of Flashdance, but would not get another substantial role until the L word on Showtime two decades later. The film was not expected to become the powerhouse it became, and even in its opening weekend, it came in second to a really lousy Chuck Norris movie called Lone Wolf McQuaid. By week two, the film would be the number one film in America, and even gross a tiny bit more than it did the first week, even though it was playing in the same amount of theaters. Week three would see the same result, still number one, and still grossing a tiny bit more than the previous week. The movie, driven by the popularity of its accompanying soundtrack album, would stay in the top 10 for 15 weeks, and then rejoin the top 10 three weeks later and stay there for another eight weeks. By the time Paramount stopped reporting grosses in mid-October, the film had grossed more than $90 million against a $7 million production budget. In 2020 numbers, that would be a $230 million gross against an $18 million budget. The second Simpson-Bruckheimer production would be Thief of Hearts, which would be the directorial debut of screenwriter Douglas Day Stewart. Stewart had recently written two major hits in The Blue Lagoon for Columbia and An Officer and a Gentleman for Paramount, the latter of which was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Thief of Hearts is a glitch in the Simpson-Bruckheimer filmography. It's an erotic drama for starters, a proto-Fifty Shades of Grey for the staid time of Ronald Reagan, and the type of film that would never happen again under Simpson's watch. It belies the high-concept type of filmmaking supported by Simpson as a production executive at Paramount in the 70s and would be his calling card as a producer in the 80s and 90s. And it doesn't have a killer soundtrack that could drive ticket sales. The film, which features Stephen Bauer in his first post-Scarface leading role, would become the lowest-grossing movie during their years as a producing team, barely grossing $10 million. Their next film would make them producing superstars. Simpson used to claim the initial idea for Beverly Hills Cop came to him in 1977, although at the time it was a cop from East Los Angeles who was transferred to Beverly Hills. Michael Eisner says it was he who came up with the idea for the movie after he had been stopped for speeding on a freeway by a condescending officer two years earlier. Whoever came up with the original idea, they also came up with a really lousy title for it. Beverly Drive. Ugh. Sometime in the late 1970s, screenwriter Danilo Bach was put in charge of coming up with a first draft. Bach would write a pure action movie, and the cop in question, Ellie Axel, would be from Pittsburgh. That script would sit in limbo for a few years, until the surprise success of Flashdance made Simpson want to pursue the idea again. 
A new writer, Daniel Petrie Jr., was brought in, who added some humor into the story and moved the now Axel Ellie's hometown from Pittsburgh to Detroit. The first star signed for the film was Mickey Rourke, who bailed on the project when script rewrites took too long and he decided to make the Pope of Greenwich Village instead. Then Sylvester Stallone came aboard, and with that came another round of rewrites, this time by the Oscar-nominated screenwriter and actor, to suit his own wants or needs. But Stallone's rewrites, which named the lead character Axel Cobretti, were deemed far too expensive to film, including a climax where Cobretti would play chicken on a train track with a locomotive in a stolen Lambo. And Stallone would leave the project two weeks before the scheduled start of principal photography. Let me go on a sidebar for a second. Most of Stallone's script would be repurposed and became the basis for his 1986 dud Cobra, although he did buy the rights to a little-known novel called Fair Game in order to negate a potential lawsuit over the similarities between his script changes for Beverly Hills Cop, which were written while under contract to Simpson and Bruckheimer, and Cobra. Fair Game, the novel, would get a proper movie made in the mid-1990s with Billy Baldwin and Cindy Crawford, and that film would not be a success. Its failure would basically end Miss Crawford's movie career, and it became her only major starring role in a motion picture. Back on Beverly Hills Cop, two days after Stallone departed, the producers were able to sign Eddie Murphy, which of course prompted more rewrites. While the final shooting script was completed the day before the start of production, which had been delayed a month so Murphy could finish his commitments to Saturday Night Live, the comedian was allowed to improvise a number of his scenes and lines. And although the film was budgeted at $14 million, which included $4 million for Eddie Murphy's services and another $2 million in various pre-production costs incurred between 1977 and the start of production, the film would somehow come in a cool million dollars under budget. Opening on December 7, 1984, Beverly Hills Cop would gross more than $15 million in its first three days, more than doubling the gross of the number two film that week, Peter Hyams' 2010 The Year We Made Contact, a not very good sequel to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Beverly Hills Cop would remain the number one film in America for 13 straight weeks and never dropped out of the top 10 for 28 weeks. By the time Paramount stopped tracking the film just before the 4th of July holiday weekend in 1985, Beverly Hills Cop would have grossed more than $226 million, making it the highest grossing movie released during the 1984 calendar year. That would be the equivalent of $560 million in 2020 money. The next Simpson Bruckheimer production wouldn't be for another year and a half, and it would end up being another industry game changer. The story of the lives of fighter pilots training at the Miramar Naval Station in San Diego was published in California Magazine in May of 1983. Top Gun would evolve quite a bit from first draft to final film. For one, the female lead was originally written to be an aerobics instructor until Simpson and Bruckheimer met Christine Fox, a mathematician who worked at Fighter Town, USA. In a strange twist of fate, Ms. Fox would go on to become the acting United States Deputy Secretary of Defense under President Obama in 2013, becoming the highest-ranking female officer in history to serve in the United States Department of Defense. The writers of the movie would sit in on declassified classes at Miramar, and they even got to be flown in an F-14 Tomcat. 
That wouldn't be the only assistance the producers would be able to get out of the Navy. The Charlie character was changed from an enlisted member of the service to a civilian contractor, since the military prohibits that kind of fraternization between officers and, and enlisted. An opening dogfight was changed from happening over Cuba to over international waters because, you know, we didn't want to piss off Castro. A scene involving a crash on the deck of a carrier was removed, and some of the language was made more, uh, how do we say this politely, more family-friendly. And it worked. The film was so damn squeaky clean it could secure a PG rating, and thus be the perfect date night movie for everyone. It would be the only PG-rated movie Don Simpson would ever produce. In a continuing pattern for Simpson-Bruckheimer productions, they could not secure their first choice for a lead role. Matthew Modine would turn down the role of Maverick because he felt the film was too pro-military. And it's hard to blame him. The Navy would end up setting recruitment stations at some theaters playing the movie, and the number of recruits wanting to become Top Gun would increase five-fold after the movie opened. I could have been at Top Gun the summer they filmed the movie. In the fall of 1984, I was a senior in high school, and I had an important test that I hadn't quite studied for. And the only way to get out of the test was to take the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, ASVAB, which was scheduled in my school library at the same time. I ended up Category 1 in my Armed Forces Qualification Test Scoring, which means I placed between 93 and 99% in all sections of the test. All the armed services came calling, including the Navy, who all but promised I could move straight into Miramar with those scores. But I really hate flying, and I am a pacifist at heart. I would not have made a good pilot, which I only confirmed years later when a friend who was a pilot let me quote-unquote take the wheel, as it were, when we flew from Watsonville to San Francisco on his little Cessna in the hopes that he could help me with my fear of flying. Nope. I actually passed out from the panic. I'm not convinced I ever actually had control of the plane, and I appreciated what he tried to do to help me, but I still hate flying to this day. And that test I skipped, I still didn't study for it by the time I needed to take the makeup. I think I got a C. But by that point of my senior year, I had pretty much checked out of all my classes except for journalism, where I was, of course, the entertainment writer and movie critic. Top Gun would shoot throughout the summer of 1985, and would be released into theaters on May 16, 1986. It would open number one with $8.2 million in 1,028 theaters. It would fall the third in its second week, beaten by Stallone's repurposed Beverly Hills cop screenplay Cobra, but we'd be back in first place again in its fourth week. The movie played all summer, never dropping lower than seventh place. It would even make a brief return to the number one spot in mid-September. By the time Paramount stopped tracking the movie in early December, Top Gun would have grossed over $167 million in 30 weeks, or the equivalent of $388 million today. Tom Cruise would move from star to superstar thanks to Top Gun, and it probably helped his next feature film, his collaboration with director Martin Scorsese and actor Paul Newman, The Color of Money, gross as much as it did, $43 million, which at the time was Scorsese's highest-grossing movie, in some senses, it's a shame that actor Tom Cruise from The Color of Money lost out to the superstar Tom Cruise from Top Gun, because that career would have been far more interesting. But that's another story for another time. 
The fifth Simpson Bruckheimer production of the 1980s would be Simpson's only sequel, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Tony Scott was rewarded for his success with Top Gun by being named director of Beverly Hills Cop 2. And apparently, Tony Scott thought he was making the pure action movie that was planned for the original. There's hardly a laugh in the entire film, which is just one action set up after another, after another, after another, after another. But because the film was a sequel to a popular movie, audiences were hoping for a return of the Eddie Murphy they loved instead of the Eddie Murphy who had made The Golden Child the previous year, which even Murphy himself called a piece of shit. When Beverly Hills Cop 2 opened Memorial Day weekend in 1987, it set an all-time record for the biggest opening weekend of all time, raking in nearly $34 million for its first three days. But it would not be as successful as its predecessor. Beverly Hills Cop 2 would only be number one for three weeks, and would no longer be tracked after its 12th week of release. Still, $146 million domestic gross and a $300 million worldwide gross on a $20 million production budget is still quite impressive. And then, nothing. And it wasn't like they weren't around. In 1988, the North American Theater Owners Association would name them Producers of the Year at their annual Show West convention in Las Vegas, which would be the second time in four years they had been awarded this honor. But it would not be until the summer of 1990 that their next production, Days of Thunder, would hit theaters. And that mess could take up a whole podcast all by itself, maybe even an entire season. And it was a mess, in large parts the accelerated production schedule, and to Simpsons needing to be THE creative force in every movie he made, and to Simpsons' need to play one of the rival NASCAR drivers to Tom Cruise's improbably named Cole Trickle, and to Simpsons' growing drug abuse. Days of Thunder was the first movie under a new contract between Paramount and the producers that would have provided up to $300 million in production funds to them. That would have also allowed Simpson to become a writer, director, and an actor. But Paramount canceled that contract after Days of Thunder because they just didn't want to deal with all the bullshit anymore. The original Days of Thunder budget of $40 million had nearly doubled while Simpson partied day and night in Daytona Beach. The script was being revised by Oscar-winning screenwriter Robert Town on a nearly daily basis, sometimes two or three times a day. There was so much waste and confusion going on that it wasn't until a rough cup was assembled that anyone noticed a crucial shot of Cole Trickle crossing the finish line to win the final race had never even been filmed. The final film would open to number one in June 1990, but it would disappear from theaters in just seven weeks with a domestic box office gross of just $82.6 million. A few months after the revocation of the Paramount contract, Simpson and Bruckheimer signed a less lucrative deal with, of all companies, Disney. Jeffrey Katzenberg, a former Simpson co-worker at Paramount in the late 70s and early 80s, was now president of production at the Mouse House, and he felt the risk of working with Simpson would be worth the reward based on their overall track record. Or maybe he felt the risk of Simpson would be worth the reward of Bruckheimer, But whichever way it was, it would be another three years before their first film under the Disney contract would be released. 1994's The Ref was not a big hit, 
because, once again, they strayed too far from their proven formula. The Ref was a mean-spirited and not very funny comedy with Dennis Leary, Judy Davis, and Kevin Spacey. Three people in a room, two of them being a married couple on the brink of divorce who have been tied up during a home invasion, and the burglar who feels the need to mediate their problems. It was lowbrow that thought it was high concept. As was one of their next movies, 1995's Dangerous Minds. But that movie had Michelle Pfeiffer and a massively successful soundtrack driven by Coolio's Gangster's Paradise and became a surprise hit. 1995 overall was a very good year for Simpson and Bruckheimer, at least professionally. In addition to the surprise success of Dangerous Minds, Bad Boys would take a commercial and music video director making his feature film debut, plus a sitcom star, Martin Lawrence, who had never played the lead in a movie, and Will Smith, a rapper who had also had a successful sitcom but had never led a film, and put them together in a very high-concept action comedy which unexpectedly exploded at the box office. Crimson Tide would re-team the producers with Tony Scott for the fourth time, and the Gene Hackman, Denzel Washington-led submarine action drama would enjoy a very successful run at the box office. But privately, things were unraveling in Don Simpson's life. His drug use was out of control, and after a recent checkup in the summer of 1995, Simpson had been told that his art beat was so off the charts abnormal that he risked a sudden death at any time, walking wrong, sleeping the wrong way, even using too much exertion while pooping could kill him right then and there. Simpson sought the help of a doctor, Stephen Ammerman, who had promised he could help the producer kick his habits. Instead, in mid-August of 95, Ammerman himself was found dead inside Simpson's pool house with a syringe next to his body. The toxicology report showed Ammerman died from an overdose of a mixture of cocaine, morphine, and Valium. Simpson would retreat further from the world, and a few months later, in January 1996, Don Simpson was found dead in his bathroom. His heart had given out while he was using the bathroom after a five-hour phone conversation with a friend, and a combination of 21 antidepressants, stimulants, sedatives, and tranquilizers were found in his system at the time of his passing. There would be one more movie released that was produced by Don Simpson, The Rock, released before Bruckheimer would retire the Simpson-Bruckheimer production shingle and become a solo producer. Although Bruckheimer would have Enemy of the State and Bad Boys 2 credited as a Don Simpson-Jerry Bruckheimer production, as well as the 2020 sequels Bad Boys for Life and Top Gun Maverick, both which would feature the iconic Simpson-Bruckheimer double lightning logo on the posters and in the credits. Bad Boys for Life would, strangely enough, open the weekend of the 24th anniversary of Simpson's passing. Simpson with Bruckheimer would produce 11 movies over the course of their 13 years together, and 8 of those 11 would inarguably be considered hit films. Very few producers from any era can claim that kind of success. And as important as many industry types claimed Simpson to be, as an excuse for why so many people in the industry enabled or at least tolerated his rampant drug use, misogynistic ways, and other unacceptable personality traits, Bruckheimer as a solo producer has done almost as good. He's produced 30 movies in the 24 years since his partner's passing. And he also moved into television production after Simpson's death, where he has brought forth such hit shows as The Amazing Race, Cold Case, Without a Trace, 
Lucifer, and four CSI-branded shows. For better or for worse, Don Simpson helped define an era and change the direction of cinema for two generations. And as big as Bruckheimer would have become after his partner's passing, he would not have become one of the most successful producers in Hollywood history without Don Simpson. And Don Simpson would have never become who he became without Bruckheimer. Many of Bruckheimer's post-Simpson movies would have never happened, or would have been far different, had it not been for a series of events that put the two of them together. They may have utilized Quentin Tarantino as a script doctor in a post-Reservoir Dog world, but they never would have produced a Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or really any movie Tarantino has written and directed. They never would have produced a movie for a Yang Yi Mao or a Christoph Kieslowski either, because that just wasn't their thing. Don Simpson made popcorn movies, movies for the masses, movies so big audiences were compelled to see them in theaters instead of waiting for cable or VHS. Don Simpson never lived to see a DVD or a Blu-ray. He'd never see digital cinema or a cell phone that could play a movie on its little color screen. He'd never know Netflix as a movie delivery by mail service, let alone a streaming universe we find ourselves in now. Don Simpson would not recognize the entertainment industry today. Even though he is of my own lifetime, he has become in death a near-mythical figure. He never became a David L. Selznick or a Samuel Goldwyn type to run his own eponymous studio. He may have ran a studio for a while, but not after he became a successful producer, unlike David Putnam, a future subject of this podcast, or John Peters and Peter Goober. He never got to direct a movie after he hit it big as a producer, like a Frank Marshall or a Richard Zanuck or an Erwin Winkler. And he would never be known as an actor after hitting it big as a producer, like our subject from our test episode, Jerry Weintraub. What Don Simpson did is to take an idea, the high concept, and push it towards its logical conclusion, the type of artistic work that can be easily pitched with a succinctly stated premise. Under Siege? That's Die Hard on a Boat. Seven? Serial Killer takes out those who have broken the Bible's deadly sins. Although Simpson would miss out on naming movies based on concepts themselves. I'd like to think he kicked himself for not thinking of something as high concept as Snakes on a Plane first. Although, to be honest, he never would have actually made it. Well, maybe Snakes on a Space Shuttle. That could actually work. Now, the show today was an attempt to defend the man or rehab his image. Don Simpson was not a good person. He was never married, he never had any children, and he became a Scientologist for a while in the 1970s because he thought he could buy his way to personal improvement. He treated his employees like shit, his female companions like shit, and pretty much everyone who could and could not help him and his career like shit. He is a not-so-subtle reminder of the worst Hollywood could be. And if you'd like to learn more about Don Simpson, in addition to the Charles Fleming biography I mentioned at the top of the show... You should also read Julia Phillips' You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, in which the Oscar-winning producer of The Sting gives absolutely zero fucks about flinging all of the Hollywood dirt around, which includes a number of passages about Simpson. It's a good read. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, We rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. 
please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the film higher rankings, which helps the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at Filmjerk. The Filmjerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Thank you.